Hi everyone and welcome to the Second Home Podcast. I am Jared Holland and your host. The Second Home Podcast is a series of interviews targeted at the life outside of study for international students to provide inspiration, motivation and empowerment. Welcome to our very first podcast in a Second Home series for which I am extremely grateful to kick things off with the amazingly talented Carissa Reiniger. Carissa is the CEO and founder of Silver Lining, which she founded 13 years ago at the age of just 22, and has been working with small businesses to help them achieve sustainability, gain ideal profitability, and succeed. What she strives for isn't easy, but with her level of passion, she's been able to help over 10,000 small businesses in more than 10 countries through her SLAP program. In today's show, we'll be discussing with Carissa on why she's so passionate about small businesses, the challenges and problems she's faced throughout her personal and professional life, how she conquered them, and how her experiences relate to international students around the world. We'll also be talking about her recent achievements, her ability to change failure into success, and how to overcome adversity and anxiety. So here we go. Enjoy. So Carissa, I'm going to jump straight into it. Let's do it. You were homeschooled until you were in year 10. Yes. Why? Well, the simple answer is that I failed kindergarten. Um, I was told in kindergarten that I um, was potentially dyslexic as having a lot of time, a really hard time learning how to read. Um, and then in addition to that, I was having a lot of social anxiety. So, um, you know, for most kids, recess is the most exciting part of the day. For me, it was definitely the most complicated and difficult part. So I was experiencing significant anxiety in the form of feeling sick all the time, feeling stressed all the time, crying a lot. Um, and so when it went to going into grade one, um, everyone decided that it would make more sense for me to be homeschooled and to try to go into the traditional school system. So why, when you look back now, what where is that anxiety coming from? I mean, they, that's like the, every psychologist would love to be able to answer where anxiety comes from. I think that it is a combination of nature and nurture. Um, I think some personalities are predisposed to anxiety and then environmental factors certainly play in. To this day, you know, I have a really good family. I come from a lot of, I'm lucky in a lot of ways. And it's also true that my anxiety was extremely, extremely strong, crippling, uh, to the point that I chose to stay homeschooled until grade 10 when I finally forced myself to go to school. Um, you know, and when I look back on it, anxiety is usually because we feel out of control in some way. And so I had a huge amount of angst in any scenario where there was an unknown, something that I didn't know how to solve or I didn't know how to handle. So yeah, I mean, to the point where I would worry, stress for days about the fact that we were going to drive somewhere and I would have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the car ride. So, you know, my anxiety played out in very day-to-day -day things. I wasn't worried about big stuff. I was worried about the day-to-day -day in such an overwhelming way that I essentially felt sick to my stomach all the time. I had headaches all yeah. the time. It manifested into a lot of physical symptoms that stopped me from doing pretty much everything that a regular kid would do. Going so your, to school. your childhood was very different. Very different. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. There is a silver lining to everything. Um, because I didn't live a traditional childhood, because I didn't go to school or have sleepovers at friends' houses or do other things that kids do, I was home a lot. I have an incredibly close relationship with my brothers. Um, I learned a lot about life skills because of the fact that I was at home for as much as I was. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I don't think I would trade what happened, but it would it would be inaccurate to say that it would 
you know, it was it, it was extremely challenging. It was mm. not a fun experience to go through that much anxiety. If you, if you went back to when you were in primary school or junior yeah. school and you were your parents, would you make the same decision to keep you out of school? I would. I think that my parents gave me a chance to develop in my own way. Um, and something that I believe very strongly is that every human is unique and has a different version of a life story. And so many of the institutions that we operate within are trying to make everyone follow the exact same path. And the gift that I was given um, without a question in my mind is that my parents let me follow a path that was uniquely mine and grow into all of the pieces that I am, you know, in a way that was untraditional. Uh, I think so many kids who would have been in the same circumstance that I am had they been forced into a, you know, a school system or into any other structure, I would have I would have failed. Um, and so the version, who knows what I would have turned out as, but I'm extremely grateful that, um, yeah, the decision was made to let me do it a different way. I've met a lot of international students who talk about following the same path, hmm. that will actually admit that they are following the path in their education that their parents mm -hmm. have told them to follow. Yeah. And when you sit down with them and you have a chat for a while, they will actually admit that they actually don't want to study to be a lawyer or an accountant. Uh, but their parent, I had a conversation last week with a young gentleman who said that his parents don't want to lose faith, use, lose face back in their country in India by telling their friends that their son is studying a certain thing yep. when their parents want them to study something else. So you're very lucky that your parents were able to observe what was happening, what was unique to you, and to be able to actually have the courage to adapt. Yes. How, how do young people make decisions or communicate with their parents or change what they're doing when their parents haven't been as liberal as open-minded of that to adapt but want them to take a very traditional and mind you out of date pathway yeah yeah so you know my story i'll take a roundabout way to answer that so my story is that i was homeschooled until grade 10. i went to high school i went to university um, essentially, as soon as I was in university, the day after my last exam, I booked a one-way ticket. I flew across the country. I moved to Toronto. Five years later, I moved to New York. Started my company at the age of 22. So how and old so were you when you left home? 21. I moved out when I was 18 and lived in my own apartment um, and then left when I was 21 um, and started my company when I was 22. And in the midst of all of that, I mean, I give my parents a ton of credit because they supported all of these decisions. Did they like them? Would they have preferred that I maybe did a couple of things that were a bit more traditional, a, li a little you know, less risky or a lot less risky? Uh, definitely. But, you know, and, and my parents were fairly open-minded, but the, the number of people in my life who have been naysayers, who have thought that I was crazy, who have thought that I should not do this thing that I was doing, who thought I was abandoning my family, who thought I was abandoning my education or my career, you know, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me to follow a more traditional path, you know, get married, why don't I have kids yet? I mean, all of these things, you know, the social norms go far beyond education and the pressure from society is massive. So to choose to do something that you know is uniquely right for you versus to follow the system um, is very, very, very difficult. That being said, what I feel like I've learned over all these years is that um, there's really three things to it. One is 
I had to do a lot of work to get to the point where those voices left and I had enough quiet to actually figure out what I really wanted. Because I think that for a long time I knew I didn't want what everyone wanted for me, but I couldn't name what I actually wanted. And so I wasn't going in a specific direction. I was just going away from everyone else, which was you know, just rebellion really. And so it took me a while to get to the point where I kind of had the emotional maturity to actually be able to name what I wanted. That was the first thing. The second thing is developing really good communication skills, developing the ability to say to someone, I hear you. I appreciate that that's your opinion about my life. Thank you for caring about me enough to have an opinion about me. Uh, And I'm an adult and I'm not going to do exactly that, but here's why I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I ended up really realizing, it took me until my late 20s, that to a certain degree, I was I had to be a walking PR campaign for myself, for my own choices, for the reasoning behind it, for why it mattered to me. And people have been able to come alongside a lot more. And then the third thing is it's just patience. It's tenacity. It is about waiting it out you know, longer than all the critics so that at the end of the day, you can show what your vision actually is realized. But that takes... You know, I've been doing what I've been doing for 13 years and I still have a long way to go. That takes a long time. And so really realizing that if you want to live life on your own terms, it's a long game. It is not a short, you know, I made a big decision. Everyone all of a sudden agrees with me, but it takes a long time to live out, you know, a vision for an alternative life. And so, you know, as I have said to myself and others, you got to got to make the call and then you got to hold and you got to hold longer than all the critics can hold their criticism down. And that's just about being, again, tenacious and being patient and and putting in Mm. the work uh, to prove out your version of life for yourself. And the, the most courageous decision for some people is actually the conversation with their parents. And you talked about it as like you were walking PR campaign. Yeah. It's almost like some of the international students I meet have to build a PR campaign just for their parents. Totally. So that they can go and live their own life and not the life that their parents had thought they wanted to live. Totally. And, you know, one of my um, – I'm a big believer in therapy and coaches and mentors and just having lots of inputs into your life so that there are different voices. And one of the things that one of my therapists said to me that I thought was so helpful was, you know, Chris, you become an adult. Being an adult has nothing to do with your age. You become an adult when you can look at your parents and you can see them as humans, not as parents, and you can acknowledge all of the amazing things that they've given you And you can recognize some of their own stuff that they pass down to you. And you can see it for what it is. You can thank them for the good. And you can step away from the bad. And you can take on your own responsibility for your own choices and your own life. And that that really resonated with me because, you know, in order to be an adult, it's not about turning a certain age. It's about taking full responsibility for your own life and acknowledging that it kind of doesn't matter that much what everyone else thinks. It's, of course, you want to protect your relationship with your parents. I'm not saying that. But... You know, there is going to be things that people don't agree with you on, including your parents. But if you are an adult, you should you can hold the reality of that. I love them. They love me. And we don't agree on this. And we're going to have to figure out how to get through that. It doesn't matter what other people think. I think we live in a society today where everyone is obsessed, obsessed. by what other people think. Yes. Um, I can relate to it. Like, absolutely. Um, how... How much did that did that have an impact on the anxiety you had as a young person as well? What other people thought, or is that, hmm. or how have you de- how have you dealt with that in your life? Yeah. To, I always think if you can not worry about what other people think, like your life would be 
pretty easy, easy. so less stressful. Yeah. <laughs> but I think most of the stress and anxiety that we have in our lives is because we're always worrying how people are judging us. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that my anxiety as a child was much more about the pressure I was putting on myself than the pressure that other people were putting on me. Um, because I was, you know, that that anxiety drove me to be, you know, quite frankly, a perfect human being on every, you know, I was, I was a good person. I didn't make bad decisions. I took care of my family. You know, I was And you perfect. had that pressure from such a young age of trying to be the best version of yourself. Yes, from totally. That and that was very much my right. own, for whatever reason, that I, you know, I put on myself. And so the reality is that I had a lot of external support because I was such, I was quite, you know, such a poster child for so many good things. Where I started to have to reconcile external, you know, opinions of me and pressures is when I started my business and, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but, you know, on the one hand, I, I had some massive successes at a very young age. And on the other hand, I had some massive failures at a very young age. You know, I talk often about the fact that I was $400,000 in debt by the time I was 25. And I was in that debt because of decisions I had made in my own business. And so, you know, I, on the one hand, was being celebrated in the press and by, you know, fans and, you know, people who were so amazed by what I'd created at such a young age. And on the other hand, you know, I was being villainized for these mistakes that I'd made and the problems that I had, you know, created for myself. And so I spent a lot of my, you know, 20s, probably it took me probably seven or eight years to work through my own emotion around those loud voices, you know, coming in, both celebrating me and absolutely, you know, trashing me. And figuring out how to reconcile, I remember saying to one of my advisors once, I can't figure out if I'm a rock star or an absolute utter failure. I don't know which one I am. And he said, you're both. You're both. Every human is much more complicated than just being a massive failure or a massive success. You are both. You are both incredibly talented and have done amazing things. And you have totally screwed up because of your own blind spots. You know, And you, your character will show in how you handle it. And so I've really... I have really learned to grapple with, you know, the gray that is much more complicated than the black and white that we'd all love to see, right? Black and white, my parents approve, they don't approve. You know, the people love me, they don't love me. And, act, you know, I'm good, I'm bad. Um, and live in the gray, which is my parents will like some of the things I do and not some of the others. And is that accepting who you are? Is that what you totally. call the gray? Yeah. I think it's growing up. I think it's, I think it is, um, I don't even know if it's accepting who you are because I don't even think we know who we are. I think we're mm. constantly evolving and constantly learning about who we are. I think the gray is accepting the messiness of it all. It's ex it's accepting that we don't have all the answers and we don't know. And maybe we're going to be wrong sometimes and maybe we're going to be right sometimes. And maybe that advice our parents gave us was actually really good advice, but we had to learn the lesson ourselves. Um, I think it's just accepting that we honestly don't know. We're all doing the best we can with the information that we have at the time that we have it. And that we're going to win sometimes and we're going to lose sometimes. We're going to be right sometimes, wrong sometimes. And we don't know and we don't have to know. We just have to keep going for it. So uh, one of my favorite quotes is the only certainty is uncertainty. Totally. We don't know what's going to happen. But if you can try and accept that you don't know what's going to happen, you can sort of be at peace by having totally. uncertainty. Yeah. But I think uncertainty and particularly with international students that I meet, they have so much more uncertainty. Yeah than a lot of other people because one they don't know if they're going to get a job when they graduate they don't know if they can stay in this country when they graduate if that's what they want to do so visas become an issue jobs become an issue they don't know where they're going to be living the uncertainty they're faced with is 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 definitely more dramatic for an international student totally but accepting it i think is easier said than done 
Yes, definitely. You know, I'm in a very different position, obviously, than an international student. That being said, I live and I work in the U.S. as a Canadian, which depends on a visa that gets renewed every two years that I may or may not get at any given moment. Um, You know, I have a partner who's Australian and we've got families in two very different countries that are very far apart. And we've got uncertainty around if they need us and when they need us. I own a business that obviously comes with a ton of uncertainty. And so... um, I would say that I live a life with a exceptional amount of uncertainty. Um, and so I can relate to that. I know what that's like. And what I have had to learn is, number one, you know, to create certainty in any area that I can so that I can ground myself, right? So a morning routine, um, knowing that no matter where I am in the world, I always know where the nearest bookshop is because I love books <laughs> and I want to read and, you know, be connected to reading. Um, you know, having a weekly video chat with my family so that no matter where I am in the world, I've got that time with my family and my nieces, even if I'm on the other side of the world. There are these elements of consistency that I can create that make my life feel a little bit more grounded in the midst of the uncertainty. And then, of course, there is the reality then of accepting that at any given moment, something big could be thrown into the mix and I've got to figure out how to continue to tweak it. Um, And I talk all the time with my friends about the fact that I don't have a life plan, but I have a set of values. And my commitment to myself is that I will make every new decision that I make so that my values do not get compromised. but my circumstances might constantly change. Maybe I need to leave the US because my visa doesn't get approved. Okay, what do I do now? Um, and really, you know, it sounds really cheesy, but I really believe it. You know, choosing to think of life as this grand adventure where anything could happen. And maybe that thing that I thought was the plan can't be the plan anymore. But maybe that means that there's an interesting new plan that could take me in a new direction. And so, um, I really, in a very dramatic way, release this idea that there's end result. I have no idea where I'll be in five or 10 or 20 years, but I know that there'll be some things that are consistent. I'll talk to my nieces every single week, mm. a minimum of once, on a video call. You know, um, I know that I'll always read good books. I know that I'll always work out and do my morning routine. Like I know that I know what my life will look like, even if I don't know all the circumstances that I'll be around in it. And that is a great adventure. That's such an interesting fascinating way to live life that feels so much more exciting to me than making sure I've got the right degree in the right house in the right suburb with the right minivan, you know, that it's, it feels more fulfilling to me. Um, so I've really, I have really figured out that I want to embrace the uncertainty and let it become this big adventure. And that feels really fun. I think, I think that's really good advice is to find the things you can control and then accept that everything else is uncertain and then enjoy that uncertainty. Yes. Um, and I think there's, there's a saying that well, there's a belief that you can actually turn anxiety into excitement because totally. not getting into the whole neuroscience of it all, but it's actually the same part of the brain and some emotions that totally. produce anxiety and excitement. And if you change your mindset, you can actually switch between the two. Absolutely. And you know, anxiety is it's energy. It's energy in your system. And it's funny, one of the words that people most often describe me as is excited. I'm always excited. But you know, it, I really believe that what has happened in my life is I I took that fuel, which was anxiety, which stopped me. It's very powerful. And I transferred, it's the same energy though. Nothing's changed about the amount of energy I'm using. I was using an incredible amount of energy to feel that anxious. Um, But I've shifted how the energy is being used to have ambition and excitement and curiosity, but it's the exact same energy. You know, when I was anxious all the time, I always felt it in the pit of my stomach. I was sick all the time. I feel all my excitement in my stomach. You know, Mm. I still, it feels like it's the same energy going through my body at, at all times. 
I've just figured out how to redirect that energy so that it's propelling me as opposed to sticking me in one place. And I think that that is possible for anyone. I, be I believe to my core that, that that is possible for anyone. Is there a point in time that you remember where you felt that shift happen? Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was very dramatic. Um, so I decided in grade nine that I, I had to get over my anxiety. I had to go to school. And what I learned about myself was that I am very stubborn. And when I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. I refuse to be someone that does something or says I'll do something and then doesn't actually do it. And so um, I told a bunch of people that I was going to go to high school. That was my first step because I knew once I said it, I would have to do it. Um, so that was my first move. I went to high school my first day. I was totally overwhelmed, scared, threw up, you know, for all the days leading up to it. And I went, I remember going to school. It wasn't that bad. I was fine. I figured it out. I, I literally remember walking home after school that day, grade 10, first day after 10 years of avoiding this moment, thinking, huh, that wasn't that bad. I can totally do that. And I, and I had this both conscious and I think subconscious seismic shift where I thought to myself, I have just spent 10 years of my life petrified of this moment, throwing up on a daily basis, going to doctors and specialists, trying to figure out why my body was so sick all the time, you know, living in my house, never having a sleepover, never doing anything that normal kids do. And then I just did it. And it really wasn't that bad. It was totally okay. And that that has become, you know, a guiding life philosophy, really. I can sit there and I can worry, or I can just go try it. And chances are really, 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 really good that just doing it won't be nearly as bad as what my mind could imagine it might look like. And that's why I care so much about people moving into action and just going for it. Because I learned when I finally took that action, it wasn't that bad. You know, I literally spent 10 years worrying about that one moment that I did and had this massive realization. Like, oh. And, you know, not to be dramatic, but really my anxiety shifted dramatically on that one first day of school. You know, I didn't experience anxiety in, in any of the same way ever again. Um, yeah. I mean, it's that powerful. Yeah. And I think a lot of people ask the biggest barriers to starting a business. And I always say starting. Exactly. Like just start. Exactly. And it's like doing this podcast. Yes. We are just, just starting. And, you might and that's mean, the biggest barrier people put in front of themselves absolutely. is actually just taking that first step. And you never know until you do it, right? So you can have all these ideas and all these spreadsheets and all these thoughts and opinions and academic research on how something goes. You have no idea until yeah. you just do it. You know, this podcast, it may suck. We might need to re-record it or, you know, you may come up with a different format for the next one. Fine. That's interesting information that you wouldn't have had if we hadn't just started, right? And so, um, yeah, there's nothing. I have learned that there is nothing more powerful than just trying and learning and being open to the idea that your entire life is research and development. All of it. There's no moment where the product is finished. It's always research and development. Build new features. Adjust new things. Right? Change things. But it's it's just R and D. We're living in a whole life of R and D. And how interesting is that? Yeah. And you've achieved a lot to date. But do you feel like you're just starting? Yeah. Yeah. I'm nowhere near where I need to be or what I want to do or see where I want to be. I mean, this is like the I have so much ahead of me. It's so exciting. Yeah. A lot of the. A lot of the best entrepreneurs that I know and I relate to mm -hmm. seem to have all followed a non-traditional path. Mm -hmm. You know, they haven't gone to the great schools and, mm -hmm. and then the, the Ivy League universities and got law degrees and then gone on to create great businesses. Totally. Most of them dropped out of school. Yes. A lot of them have dyslexia. A lot of them have all these different problems. Yep. Yet 
they equally all seemed at some point face adversity. Absolutely. And then they've gone on to do amazing things. Yes. How much do you think, and you've faced a lot of adversity in mm-hmm. your life too, and you've, mm-hmm. you've done amazing things afterwards. How much do you think facing adversity is actually an advantage? Massive. Yeah. You know, um, so I live in New York City where there are a lot of what we would call trust fund kids, right? People who were born into serious privilege, did all the right things, went to the right schools. You know, and when you look at them in their 20s or 30s or 40s, you know, their, their level of real world understanding, you know, their, their core structure and strength of character is oftentimes a lot weaker than the person who came from nothing and had to figure some stuff out. And, you know, I think we get so distracted by the storyline of what a good life looks like or a good family or a good education or a good career. Um, but, you know, it's funny, I was sitting with a bunch of MBAs in New York recently for dinner and one of the MBAs, you know, said to me, but like, you have a psychology degree. How, how can you run a tech business? And I said, well, I can run a tech business because I started it and I built it and it's my business. Like, that's how I learned how to run a business because mm. I did it. I said, you guys sat in a school reading case studies about people like me who actually did it. Yeah. So you can't tell me that, you know, I can't run a business. But it was just the arrogance of that MBA mm-hmm. mentality, this idea that if you read about how to run a business, you're somehow more qualified than the person who actually started the business and built it and ran it and learned it um, was so striking to me because I do believe, I do believe that the people who come from kind of untraditional points of view often have the most clear perspective. I definitely believe that all of my greatest moments of character development and strength as a leader came from when I fell the you know, the furthest and screwed up the most. Um, my successes haven't taught me anything. My failures have made me a good human being, a strong character, a good leader. Uh, and I have so much further to go. The other day, I actually said to one of my staff members that, um, you know, I'm kind of ready for my next big failure. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm kind of like hitting the level that I'm topping out a little bit right now. And so I should knock on wood because who I don't, <laughs> I don't want to call that in too aggressively, but I do. I do really believe that. I have had my absolute greatest breakthroughs, greatest growth moments uh, in my absolute worst brutal failures. I find it, I always find it interesting when I meet a young student who's doing a bachelor's and then they're discussing about rolling it straight into a master's. Mm-hmm. And my comment is always, Roll rather than going rolling straight into a master's, go out and do something totally. first, totally. and come back and do a master's later. Because totally. you're going to learn five times more out in the real world, doing yes. something, messing up, failing, totally. than you are by rolling into more education and learning from other people that have done it. Absolutely. You know, my uh, my advice is not dissimilar. I always say, go work in a small business because you're going to get so much experience as opposed to working in a corporation travel for a minimum of a year, take all of that money that you're going to spend on education, just travel for a year, go see the world, go to at least 10 different countries, see how they live, see how they operate, learn like that, um, and try to start something on your own. It doesn't have to be a business. It could be a hobby. It could be a project. You could start a nonprofit. You could just do a one-off arts project. It doesn't matter, but do those three things and then decide what you really want to do with your life. Um, But the sooner you can do those three things, the better. Yeah, and I think a common problem is students not knowing what they want to do. Totally. And you're not supposed to know what you want to do at 21. But mm-hmm. one of my theories is you can work out what you want to do by working at what you don't want to do. Yep. And the only way you work out what you don't want to do is by trying lots of stuff and then realize that you don't want to do it. Right. But I think taking action, involving yourself in different things is 
how are you going to learn more about yourself? Totally. And where you want to take yourself in the future. Yeah, the idea that you're 18 years old and you have the ability to understand and project out the next 60 years of your life and make an adult decision about where you... I mean, it's actually it's insane if you think about it logically. Yeah. And so, yeah, I actually... I encourage people to delay undergrad. You know, take, take six years to do undergrad and take breaks in each semester. Take a degree that's more general. You know, I have an arts degree. I don't have a business degree. Um, you know, let it be about exploration because you can't know what you want until you've been doing a bunch of things. And so, yeah, it's a, the way that the school system is designed is so absurd, really, when you think about it logically. Yeah. And you, th- you did a psychology degree. Mm-hmm. Do you think that what your skill set in managing people mm-hmm. is actually probably more advantageous to business than having a business acumen. Yeah, business degrees are useless for the most part. I mean, what, you learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet? Who cares? You can learn that on Udemy for $3. Business or any other career is not about the technical skills. It's about people. It's about humanity. It's about learning about yourself, how you relate with other people, thinking about what your customers are thinking, thinking about your staff are thinking. Uh, And it's about building a really strong network of people who are aligned around a common idea. But it's people. If you want to be a good CEO, a good doctor, a good accountant. I mean, I think if you want to be good at anything, you are good at people. Um, you know, we, we way overemphasize technical skill. Um, but if I, our, our education system is set up to teach technical skills mm-hmm. and not the critical skills. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice on how to upskill yourself in the critical skills, which, I mean, there's plenty of reports out there that say that employers are all looking for people that have those critical skills and technical skills are nowhere in those reports. Correct. So how do young people upskill themselves? I think you get mentors. I think you get a therapist. I think you volunteer on nonprofit committees and boards. I think you join student groups and clubs and learn about yourself in a way that's different than just the work marks you get. I think you worry less about your marks and more about your other experiences. I think you read a lot. You know, reading is so powerful. You can open your mind to so many different ideas. I think you try to watch TV programs and training videos from people from different countries so that you don't just have one perspective. Um, you know, I think that you are extremely on purpose about expanding your horizons because in that connection with people and cultures and ideas is where you find so much more um, that really applies to life in a real way. So there's there's some cultures where um, the emphasis is really on getting the highest grades possible. Absolutely. Um, a lot of international students yep. that, um, you know, they're have spent a lot of money to come and educate themselves mm-hmm. in Australia or, or other um, popular destinations. And there's a real emphasis on study, 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 get the highest marks you possibly can. That's what's going to give you the best future. Yep. Now, I have differing views to that because I think there's other things more important at play, and you've touched on some of them. Yeah. But what's your advice to someone that is really getting pressure to try and get HDs in absolutely everything but sacrificing yeah. other parts of life that also going to be important. Yeah, so I can speak from personal experience. So when I went into high school, when I finally went to school, I had very high academic marks. And so I got put into IB, International Baccalaureate Programs, in high school. Um, And I really quickly realized, yeah, I could study a lot and I could get, you know, 99.9%, you know, as as my marks. I could do that. 
But then I actually looked at university applications and I realized that on the applications for university, they want to know about your work experience, they want to know about your volunteer experience, they want to know about your other skills. And so I realized in grade 10 that if I projected out three years to my university application, I could get more scholarships and I would be more appealing if I had more. So I made a very conscious decision in high school that I wanted to be an honor student. I wanted to get over 80% in every subject, which I did. But that all that extra time that I would have invested into studying, I would run for student council. I would start a student group. I would start this. I would do this. And I would have this robust you know, experience. And, and it was for the purpose of enjoyment, obviously, but it's because I saw what I needed to do for university. Then I got to university and I projected out to my next move, right? I want to get a job. Well, I started talking to people who were you know, who were interviewing and hiring recent university grads. And what they all told me is, I don't look at your transcript. I want to know you got your degree. And then I want to know what else you did. And so I realized that, you know, again, I'm smart. I could have got perfect marks in university if I had tried, but very much on purpose. Um, I decided to get good enough marks and build my resume. And when I graduated from university, I'd worked four full-time jobs. I'd started a nonprofit organization. I'd traveled around the world. I mean, I'd done all these things that made me an interesting human. And truth be told, not one person in any interview I ever went to asked for my transcript. They wanted to know I got my degree, which I did. But no one asked what my GPA was. They could care less. They want to know who I am and what I have to offer. Um, and my ability to study does yep. not apply in the real world. It's, it's irrelevant. Yesterday, I hired my 36th person in my businesses. Mm-hmm. And still today, the number 36, I have not asked for one CV. Yeah. Not seen one, totally. don't care, couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. But each one of those people, I somehow know, some I've only known for a few days or a few mm-hmm. weeks, but I've met them, I've interacted with them, I've seen them, I know people that know them. And I've hired them without ever looking at their CV and I could not care less. Yeah, resumes are useless. Applying for jobs is silly, right? Like all of these, again, it's these old structures. Education's an old structure. Resumes and applying on search engines for jobs. They're old structures. They don't work. They're They're not productive in the way that I think our world really operates. And so... Releasing that, these ideas, then, yeah. You made a decision in, in year 10, which is very mature for mm-hmm. someone that had been homeschooled for so long yeah. that could barely leave the house. Yes. To be mature <laughs> enough to actually look ahead and say, well, hang on, this is what people are looking for for me as a big girl yep. and I'm going to adapt what I'm doing, which is against the status quo to what everyone else was doing. Absolutely, which is why I got scholarships and why right. I got into it. wasn't my marks had nothing to do with it. And how important was the network that you built? everything. Um, We've talked before about the fact that when I, so when I moved to Toronto from Edmonton, where I'm from, I didn't know a soul. So Mm -hmm. I was graduate, wrote my last exam, moved to Toronto the next day, one-way flight, um, stayed there for five years, started my company a year after I moved there, and then did the same thing when I moved to New York City. So, you know, Toronto was a big city. So so you started a business in Toronto after being there for a year, and when you arrived, you knew no No one. No one, zero people, zero humans in Toronto. And then when I moved to New York five years later, I was now 26, and I knew zero humans in New York City. New York City is a big city. Some people might argue that you have built a successful business because you were privileged. Right. Well, it's completely out the out the window because no you went to a new city and you know one and you had to start from base Absolutely zero. zero. Zero, 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 zero. Um, and my family has given me so much, but they did not give me an instant network. That I had to build yeah. myself. Um, and so I have a formula and I do it every time. I've done it in every market that we've gone into that I've built our business into. I make a spreadsheet. 
I start doing research on people who I think that I would like, who have similar passions or interests, and who also care about the same things I care about. And if it's for business, then specifically, you know, people have small business in common with me. And it's never been easier because there's things like LinkedIn. It's amazingly straightforward, right? You read the news, you read podcasts, you read blogs, you look at LinkedIn, you look at Facebook, you, I mean, you just do research, really. The internet is an incredibly helpful tool. And I make a list and my job is that I am not done in, you know, kind of getting to know the market until I have a hundred names on that list who are all in green. So not only do I have to have a hundred, they all have to be green. And what green means is that I've actually met them in person. We've had such a good conversation that I would want, that I would A, want to see them again. They would want to see me again. And you know, there'd be something to do together, whether it's build a friendship or do a business deal together or something. And I'm done going into a new place when I have a hundred green names on a spreadsheet. And I'm not done until I have a hundred green names on a spreadsheet. And so when I moved to Toronto, I started cold calling anyone who would listen to me, asking if I'd take them for coffee. Um, And I think I did about 400 meetings to get to my 100 that were green. When I went to New York, New York moves faster. I think I did about 180 meetings to get to my, you know, 100 that were green. And what's interesting, you know, obviously I've gotten older. I have more credibility. And so that exercise gets easier in each new country that I go to or in each new city that I go to. But, you know, I did it the first time when I was 21 you know, in Toronto with a Bachelor of Arts degree, you know, nothing fancy, no money, no connections. And that's how I started my career. I didn't start my career with my degree. I started my career with those 400 coffee meetings that eventually I could turn 100 to green. And I built my business and my life off of that network and have done that very much on purpose, you know, every year since then. A very loaded question. So when I hear from international students that it's too hard to build a network here, I don't know anyone. Not true. What's your comment to that? Absolutely not true. You know, everything, I say this all the time, and I apologize to the listeners of this because it is very, you know, this is black and white, not gray. Um, But there are people in the world who figure it out, and there are people in the world who make excuses. There's only, those are the two options. You figure it out or you make excuses. And when I interview people, what I want to know is, is this a person who figures this out or is this a person who makes excuses? And the second I hear that excuse thing come in, I'm yeah. done. We fire people on it. We, I mean, done. Because someone who just figures it out can do anything. Yeah. Anything. At I the use, end the, of the, I day, use the analogy of problem-focused problem or solution-focused. And I find it really, really hard to sit in the same room with a problem-focused person. It's impossible. They're never, it's, for those people, it is impossible. That's actually true. But for anyone who's willing to look at it and say, I don't know anyone, you know, but my best friend's dad, I think, is in business. Maybe I'll ask him to go for coffee and then I'll ask that guy to introduce me to one person and that person may introduce me and then maybe that person will recommend a networking event I could go to and then I'll meet two people there. All of a sudden, you're in business, you know, you're moving. And so um, it is absolutely not true that you cannot start from anywhere and get to where you want. It's just about how you choose to do it. Yeah. You convinced 10 corporates to give you 100 grand each for three Mm -hmm. years. Yes. At a very, very young age. And I think this is another example of anyone can do it, right? Because if a 21-year-old female 10 years ago can convince 10 corporates to give her 100 grand. With really no experience, no credibility. And no no credibility, no disrespect, but no credibility as a 22-year-old. I mean... What's it take to do that? I mean, is it courage? Is it ambition? What does it take to do that? I mean, I think it's both of those things. I think it is um, 
What my parents would say about me and my partner would say about me is that I am absolutely relentless when I have an idea in my head. And for better and worse, I do not give up. I will not give up. I will do it. I will figure it out. And a problem is actually just a really interesting new challenge. I love a challenge. And so, you know, I think that in a situation like that, if I would have said, well, here's my PowerPoint deck and I'm going to go to three meetings and oh crap, they said no to me. I guess it failed. I would have failed. But every at every moment in that journey, it was a new opportunity, a new challenge. Okay, well, they said this. What? How do I respond? Okay, well, this happened. Well, how do I move this around? You know, and I really... I think that the challenge of it is what's what's the most interesting part of it. And so I think if we accept that life is full of these interesting challenges and we let that become interesting and exciting and engaging and, you know, get ourselves into the challenge as opposed to stuck out of or, you know, struck down by the challenge, um, anything's possible. And that is a great example of it. You know, there were so many moments where that deal was going to fall apart, but at every move, you know, it was the next challenge. Okay, well, this is my new piece of information. How do I take that information and massage it to my next play? Okay, well, who do I call next? Okay, well, what do I do here? And, you, you know, it's a constant juggling um, of all of the pieces. You know, a little bit like we talked about earlier, right? This idea that life's going to throw you new things. Mm. Deals are going to throw you new things. Interview processes are going to throw you new things. And the job is not to get it right. The job is to take all that new information and then make your next move and then take the new information you get yeah. and then make your next move. And that's that's what happened with that deal. I just kept making my next move, refused to quit, refused to stop. Every new thing that came in was just new information for me and it resulted in that deal. Um, Do you yeah. believe in luck? Hmm. Like if someone said, oh, she's so lucky. She like she got 10 caught. Oh, that was, she's so lucky. I don't believe in luck. I, I don't. I don't think that... What I do believe in is like moments of opportunity, moments of coincidence, mm-hmm. moments of like. Um, but you make those moments. My view is that you make your own luck. You do. You find luck if you put yourself in a position where that moment happens, where you can take advantage of that luck. But you created that luck. I do think that's true. And I would add to it, though, that I think, you know, we live in a world right now that's so focused on this idea of white privilege, right? Or male privilege. I think all of us have privilege, all of us. All of us are dealt, you know, a card, a deck of, you know, what am I trying to say? All of us are dealt, um, you know, a a deal. We all are dealt our cards. And each of us have the ability to leverage those cards in whatever way is best for us. And so being an international student could be a disadvantage. It could also be an advantage based on how you play your cards. Being a female can be a disadvantage or an advantage based on how you play the cards. Being a Canadian, you know, can be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on how you play the cards. And so, you know, I think that, I think it's less about luck. I think it's about each of us acknowledging the privilege that we have, because I think all of us have some privilege, and the deck of cards that we've been, that we've been dealt. And then it's about us playing it and being strategic about how we play it. And then noticing when those little amazing opportunities pop up. You know, that deal that I had with the corporations, there was this amazing woman who was the CMO of Staples who got it right away, right? That's a little bit of luck. I mean, there's a little bit of luck in that, in that this woman caught my vision and became my ally to get that deal done. Now, I cold called her and I got in the room with her and I pitched her and I had enough, you know, Mm. energy that she believed me. But you probably also had a hundred other people that said no to get to that one. Absolutely. That's right. And so it is this really fascinating, messy, gray combination, I think, of 
each of us playing our hand, acknowledging our advantages and our disadvantages, because all of us have both, figuring how to take all of our new information in at all times to keep making our next move, as opposed to being so narrowly focused that we miss these really yeah. amazing opportunities. And then recognizing, being so smart to recognize when we're in one of those really amazing moments that we don't get all the time, where we find the person or the opportunity that so perfectly aligns. Um, other people would call that whole big combination luck. Uh, you know, I think it's as complicated as I just laid yeah. out. How important is self-awareness then as a as a starting point? Massive. Yeah. You know, I wasn't as self-aware when I was younger as I am now. And I will be more self-aware, I'm sure, 10 years from the person that's sitting here doing yeah. this interview. Um, but of all the things that I have done in my, you know, 14 years of business, um, the thing that I have that has changed my life and my business the most is every time I've enrolled myself in coaching, training, even having a personal trainer, physical trainer, um, therapy, development programs, um, anything where I have realized that in order for me to have, you know, we spend so much money on our education, right? Up, up leveling our skills, our mm. technical skills, but we don't have a culture yet that understands that investing in ourselves, our emotional intelligence, our self-awareness, like that's not valued in the same way, which is crazy because that's the driving force of everything, our personal and our business relationships, our careers in general. And so um, the best investment I have ever made, hands down, has been in my development to the point where we're actually building a leadership program for all of our staff at Silver Lining, and we're gonna we're gonna get them access to all the things I've been so privileged uh, to get access to because I just changes mm. everything. So most people are busy being busy. Absolutely. Right? So how and you're no different. How do you find the time to work on yourself? Everything's a choice. Right, going back to this idea that you're either someone who figures things out or you make excuses. Being busy is an excuse, yeah. and I'm I'm guilty of it. I say the words "I'm busy" more often than I wish I did. Um, but as we tell our small businesses, as I tell my team, as I try to remind myself every day, being busy is a choice. If you're too busy, it means you're not very strategic. It means that you have let yourself get to the point where you either don't have the right team around you, you're not managing your calendar properly, you've taken on more than you can actually chew, and so that was a bad choice, right? Like we make. We make these choices and then our excuse for whatever is, you know, in the way, well, I'm just really busy. And it's it's an excuse. Being busy is flat out an excuse. Um, we all have the exact same number of hours in the day. We all have the exact same number of days in the week and weeks in the month and months in the year. We are all dealt a very equal um, element of time. So it's not possible that some people, you know, are just too busy to get things done because there's a lot of people who have figured out how to be extremely efficient. So time is a choice. It's, it, that's what it comes down to, in my opinion. And do you have structures in place to make sure that you don't, that the months don't roll past and all of a sudden you're like, well, I, I haven't done anything to work on myself? Significant structures in place. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a very, if you ask anyone on my team, I'm a, I'm a very strict holder of my time. Um, and so, yeah, so I do. So I have, at any given time, I will have three inputs in my life, three coaches or advisors or mentors or programs that I'm doing. So I've got multiple moments that are forcing me into my own clarity when I'm blind. Um, I will read a minimum of 20 books that teach me new skills or keep my eyes per open year. to new ideas per year. Um, I have a minimum of an hour and a half every single day that I have blocked in my calendar for thinking, evaluating, stepping out of busyness and into strategic thinking. How much thinking. time per day, sorry? 90 minutes a day. 90 minutes a 30 day. 30 minutes in the morning and one hour in the middle of the day. Um, 
I mean, the list goes on. On that, you have a very unique morning yeah. program. Yeah, which I learned from one of the amazing people who have invested in me, a man named Warren Rustand, who's phenomenal. Uh, I'm very lucky to have him. Um, so his belief is that how we start our day will will direct our entire day. And so you take your first minute of the day, your phone has been turned off the night before, you do not look at your phone, your phone is not in your bedroom, put your feet on the floor, and you essentially think of 10 things you're grateful for, and you think about what you want your day to be, 30 seconds. As soon as that's done, you open up some sort of a book and you read positive thoughts, 10 minutes of positive thoughts, only positive all the time. So that could be poetry. That could be a religious book you believe in. It could be self-help as long as it's not too technical, but it's something that's uplifting, so that gives you, you positivity. You plan that book the night before that it's sitting there waiting so you don't have to make the decision yep. in the morning what that's to right. read. So I always have one book at a time and then when I finish it, I get my next one. So I'm always kind of working my way through a book um, right. that is not business. It's just beautiful. And I'm called to different things based on what I think I'm processing or working on um, as I go through those books. 10 minutes of reading, 10 minutes of thinking, meditating, praying, you know, whatever version of those things makes sense. Um, and then 10 minutes of writing. And the writing is just about reviewing your last 24 hours through the lens of gratefulness. You know, one version of the story might be, I had a really crappy meeting, I'm really mad. Another version might be, I learned something really important, you know, that I'm grateful that I, that I learned. And so it's almost reliving the last 24 hours in written form through the lens of gratitude. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I swear, swear by this, as do many of the people that have been lucky enough to learn from Warren. You know, the days that I do it, I am as close to the best version of myself as I think it is possible for me to get. It just... It is so in, it's so almost weird how 31 minutes can change no. everything, not just the day, but who I am. Um, you know, in the days that I don't do it, I am more prone to being busy, frenzied, running around, impatient, you know, all of the, all of the parts of myself that I like a lot less. How long, did, and do you do all this sitting on the side of your bed? I usually go to the couch. I really like being comfy on my couch. I get under a blanket. I sit on my couch in the little corner. Sometimes I make my tea and I drink it before I start and I just, it's wonderful. And for the people that are listening that might be night people, they're not mm -hmm. morning people. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, is it just a matter of making themselves form this habit? Yeah. Make themselves wake up in the morning and be switched on? I am a night person, right, on okay. paper. So I spent most of my university degree, my university years and my early silver lining years sleeping about three hours a night. I'd go to bed at four, four in the morning, wake up, you know, at seven or eight for work. Um, got, you know, got all my best work done at night, I thought. Mm -hmm. um, and Warren, when he took me on, essentially told me that I was being silly and that, you know, I had to get over that and that I had to, it, it's not about ending your day well, it's about starting your day well. And so... I had to make a decision to essentially adjust my schedule by half an hour. If I still wanted to stay up late, I could, but I had to block that first 30 minutes of the day, whatever time it was that I woke up for this routine. Um, How long did it take you to make that a habit? Yeah. So, you know, it's a really powerful thing. And so it's very addicting. Um, as soon, whenever my, my rhythm has been that whenever I start doing it, I really get into it. And so it becomes a habit very quickly. Um, the risk is that, you know, you travel or your routine breaks and then you stop doing it and then it's hard to get back into it. But like everything, as soon as I start, it's actually very addictive. It doesn't feel like you need 45 days of doing it every day for it to be a habit. It really is like once you start, you're kind of in it. It changes your, you know, it changes things so quickly. Um, so my struggle is that 
because my schedule is so sporadic, uh, there are times when I miss a day or two, and then it's really hard to get back into the practice. But once my experience is that every time I start, it's, it's game on again. It's it's so yeah. powerful. You've inspired me. It's I'm amazing. Have to try it. Do it. I'm telling you, it will change your life. Thanks. Think think we're in rust end at the end of your 31 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> you mentioned that 20 books a year. Uh-huh. Is there one book that comes to mind that you would? If, if you could gift that book to everyone in the world, is there one book that comes to mind you think yeah. everyone should read? Yeah, Dr. Henry Cloud has been another really powerful advisor in my life, and he wrote a book called Integrity, and the subtitle is The Courage to Meet the Demands of Reality. And what that means, if you look at the root of the word integrity, you know we often think of integrity as being moral or immoral, good or bad. But the root of the word integrity actually comes from the word integrated, which is actually whole, about being whole and complete. And so the courage to meet the demands of reality, the theory is that so often we make big mistakes when we you know, screw up in relationships or in our results performance. Uh, we, we tend to want to label that person who's screwed up as good or bad or that thing that happened as good or bad. And his theory is that it's actually just a, it's just proof of a lack of integration, a lack of wholeness. And so courage, integrity, is living with the day-to-day courage to deal with reality, to look at the full thing, to see it all, and that that really requires an, an exceptional amount of character. Um, and this book really is almost like a guide for how to grow your character, to have the courage to meet the demands of reality for, as an integrated whole person. It's... um. It it changed. It actually quite. I read that book when I was in the middle of my big failure on money and screwing up, and um, it saved me. You know, it's the thing that got me back into action. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's an, it is an incredible book. So you mentioned that was when you were at a down point. How important was mindset getting you out of that downturn? Everything. And I didn't have the right mindset for a long time. You know, I got stuck in my failure for probably eighteen months, and so, you know, when I look back now. Um, I wouldn't change the mistake that I made necessarily, you know, I would, but I would change how I handled it. And I would, and the primary thing is I would just have talked about it faster. I would have asked for help faster. I would have realized that um, I was in over my head. I didn't know what to do. And my reaction to not knowing what to do was to do nothing, was to put my hand, head in the mm-hmm. sand and hope and pray that it went away, which obviously it was not going to go away, um, as opposed to looking that reality in the face, calling some people and, you know, essentially having to swallow my pride and my embarrassment and say, I don't, I need help. I don't know what to do. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's so important. And my biggest lesson in all these things is that we're not meant to do this all alone. We need other inputs. We need other people. We need to ask for help. And it's in that humility that we are able to get to be the people we want to be. Yeah. And you mentioned that you wouldn't have changed that failure. How how important is failing for success? Huge and horrible. You know, I, I still have carnage from some of the mistakes that I've made, right? People who've lost faith in me or, um, you know, my credit history that I had to rebuild, you know, like yeah. real tangible things. It's not that... You know, sometimes I think we glamorize failure, right? The failure makes us stronger. It does. And part of being stronger is having to grapple with the carnage that you left behind. You know, some things you can't fix, some mistakes you make can't be resolved, can't be, you know, you can't move everything back and pretend it didn't happen. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've had loss because of my failure. And that loss is part of what 
you know, has made me learn and grow and realize the mistakes that I've made and feel the pain of it and, you know, motivate me to become better and have better character and have fewer blind spots and to be more integrated. Um, So I wouldn't trade my failure. It's taught me a lot, but it's also not, you know, the entrepreneurial story of everyone should fail. And yeah. It's not glamorous. It's hard. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks a lot. There is carnage in failure. Um, And part of growing up is recognizing your role in that and having to accept the outcome of, you know, of what you've created. Yeah. And I imagine you got pretty good at accepting rejection too because you were happy to just knock down doors repeatedly. Yeah. And you get a lot to get every yes. I've got no idea what your stats would be, but you'd have to probably get a lot of no's to get one yes. Oh, yeah. Feels like that to me all the time. Yeah, all the time. I mean, literally all the time. And I am arguably reasonably persuasive. And even at this point in my career, have you know have built some credibility. Um, and I still get said no to all the time. You know, I think if people can stop taking no as an insult and just take no as a you know part of the game. You don't go to bat and hit a home run every single time you go to yeah. bat. You strike out sometimes. You get you know a little crappy ball that gets you to first base. You know, it, it's. We're just, we got to swing a lot. And every time, every once in a while you get that home run, it's really exciting. But there's a lot of practice and a lot of times where that swing doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. But you got to do it. You mentioned you're quite persuasive. Um, being a good negotiator is a really important characteristic mm-hmm. to have in life and in business. Yep. And I know you've, you've talked times about being on a date is a negotiation. Absolutely. But how, what tips do you have to become a better negotiator? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so many, but the quick ones would be uh, negotiation is about listening more than talking, which seems ironic coming from me because I talk a lot. Uh, but, you know, the number one thing you need to know is what the other person is thinking. That's the most powerful information in negotiation. Uh, you have to know what you want out of it, right? So you're not going for a job interview. You're going because you want that job at that amount of money. And you're going to continue to negotiate, you know, the conversation to get as close to that end result as you are comfortable getting to. Uh, you have to know how where you're willing to compromise, right? You go in knowing where you're willing to compromise. So maybe you're applying for a, you know, your first job out of university. Well, maybe you're not willing to compromise on the department that you want to work in because you're so passionate about that thing that they do, but you are willing to compromise what your title is or if you report to that person or that person. And so you've really got to know going in where you're unnegotiable, you know, non-negotiable and where you're willing to negotiate. Um, And then I think, you know, there's a theme in all of this, right? It's this idea that you get comfortable in the unknown and you are always listening for new clues, right? That And that those new clues keep forming what your next move should be. And so um, I think in a negotiation, this idea that there's an end result that you know what it looks like and you're going to get to it is really narrow-minded. Rather, you know what you want. You try to figure out as quickly as possible the other person wants. You continue to take new information in at all given times. You know what you are not negotiable on. You know what you are negotiable on. And you keep just playing your cards, you know, one time after the other until you plod towards, you know, that finish line. But uh, it's not about how good of a salesperson you are. It's not about how charismatic you are. It's not about how good your pitch is. Um, It's about your ability to listen deeply and continue to adjust and mold the conversation 
Because a good negotiation doesn't mean someone loses. A good mm. negotiation means both people win. And I won't do a deal unless both people win. That's my non, I am non-negotiable about that. Um, but it's amazing how often both people can win. It's amazing. It doesn't sound that complicated when you put it that way. It's not. I don't think it is. Again, it's about people, though. It's not about. It's not about a skill. It's yeah. about being in tune and being and planning authentic. by the sounds of it. Like you, you won't go into a meeting if you haven't thought about beforehand what you want to get out of that Absolutely. meeting. So then the meeting um, can unfold because you already know how you want it to go. Absolutely. A piece of advice that I got. We raised a little bit of of money a couple five years ago at Silver Lining. And someone said to me, that's so true, they said, if you want advice, ask for money. And if you want money, ask for advice. And it's absolutely true, right? You go pitch someone, say, hire me, invest in me. The first thing they're gonna say to you is, well, let me give you some advice, right? But if you start just asking people advice, you know, this is my desire, these are my dreams. Do you have any advice for me? That person instantly starts thinking about how they can help you, the connections they could give you. If If they could invest, if they could give you a job. And so, you know, that goes back to that idea of listening more than talking. Stop selling. Ask questions. Paint and I, visions. And I think that's a really great tip for international students. Absolutely. In that when you're trying to build your network out, people actually are humbled if you ask them for advice. Absolutely. So if you're trying to get a way in with someone to have a coffee with them or to meet with them, ask them for it. Find something and ask them for advice on it. Because yes. people love to give it. Absolutely. That, those spreadsheets that I made, every single person that I've ever cold called, every email that I sent was, you know, less than two sentences. And it literally said, hey, fill in the blank. Um, you know, I really admire this thing that you do. So I give a compliment. I'd love to learn more about it. I'm new to the area. Could I buy you a coffee and pick your brain? That's it. That's all, you know, that's that some version of that email I have sent to thousands of people in multiple countries and I have built my entire life off of that little, you know, that little email. Yeah. But it's never to pitch them, it's to talk to them, yeah. hear from them, learn from them. And it, it raises, I think, an interesting point about job applications. Mm-hmm. Would you be advising someone to send a thousand generic job applications Absolutely out? Not. Or five very tailored ones? Five. Five very tailored ones. And I don't even think I'd send a job application. I would figure out who's hiring in companies that I want to work for. I would email that person directly. I'd find their email online because you can find it anywhere. And I'd send them an email and say, hey, I'm an international student. I'm just about to graduate. I love this country. I love this work. I love what you do. I'm so enamored with your business or your company or your whatever. Can I just take you for a coffee and learn more about you know what you do? I would never send a job application yeah. as long as I live. Yeah, and that comes down to not don't let it rely on a CV. Exactly. And I think also, actually, I find it's quite useful to go bottom up in an organization. Yeah. So don't try and hit the CEO up. Hit up the person that's been there for a year because they are loving it that someone's coming up to them, approaching them for yep. advice on their company yep. because they can tell other people in the organization they're getting approached and then work your way up the organization that way. It can be much more effective because someone that's been there for a year is far more more likely to respond to you than the CEO. Right. Now, I would say, though, the only counter I would say to that is it's so, it's far easier to swim downstream than upstream. And so for someone like an international student looking for a job, I wouldn't say go to the CEO. But if you could get to the manager or the director level inside of a department you're interested in, the best thing that could happen, right, is you email that person. They forward your email to someone more junior saying, hey, can you talk to this person? Now someone more junior has got a directive yeah, from their boss to, yeah. saying, 
oh, well, this is obviously important. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in. So I think, I think it's right. I think you can play from both ends. Um, but I've had so much success aiming really high up and then being passed down because uh, there's a directive now, you know, that I've essentially created. This girl's annoying me. Will someone else deal with it? Right. Or this girl sounds really amazing. Will someone please talk to her and report back to me? Yeah. Um, do you have a, when you talked about listening is really important. So do you have like a percentage balance that if you're in a meeting that you want the other person talking 70% of the time? Like it may not be stick fast, but you're trying to make sure that I always think that if I leave a meeting and they've done more of the talking, it, pro- it doesn't feel like it's a good meeting, but it actually is. Do you go into meetings with that type of attitude? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, knowledge is powerful, right? The most important thing that you can do to get what you want is to figure out what the other person's reality is and then yeah. figure out how you connect to it. So, um, I mean, in an ideal world, they're talking 80% of the time. You know, I think to have a good meeting, they need to feel like it's reciprocal. So you also don't want to be weird and just sit yeah. there quietly. Um, but yeah, I think 70-30 is a great meeting. 75-25, uh, something like that. It's great. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for your time. I've got one more question that I want to ask you and hmm. then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, but how important is it to play the long game hmm. and how difficult is it at times to play the long game, but how important is it to stick to playing the long game? Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm finally old enough and I've been doing this long enough to actually be able to answer that question with some level of validity or credibility. Um what I have, I'm a very impatient person. I want things to happen. I want them to happen fast. I want them to happen on my timeline. Yep. I'm very impatient. I'm probably one of the most impatient people. Yeah, most I know. entrepreneurs naturally are. Yes, and I have this amazing hindsight of being in business for 13 years now, um, and realizing that, like, I didn't know what I was doing for the first five years. I was throwing spaghetti at a wall, seeing what stuck. You know, getting celebrated for what stuck, dealing with the shame of what didn't stick. You know like a toddler running around like crazy, right? Um, and now I can look back and I can see the maturing process that happened. And I am so much better at my job now. And my company is so much better because of the years of wisdom that I have. And so, you know, when I look at some of these things, like realizing that in high school, I was really playing a long game of what would get me into university. When I was in university, I was playing the long game of what would get me the best job opportunities. You know, when I started my company, the mistake that I made, I think, is that I was really impatient. When I look back at a lot of the mistakes that I've made and the failures that I had, I was trying to do it too fast. I was trying to, you know, live whatever story I was trying to live out. And in that pace is when I burnt myself out, when I made mm-hmm. bad decisions, when we ran out of money, you know, the things that happened. And now I look out, I have a I have a much more patient point of view around the reality of how long things take. And by not rushing it actually allows things to get bigger, better, juicier. Um, I have younger brothers and I say to them all the time, you know, there's no pressure to be anything by 25 or 28 or 30. These very false ideas that we place on ourselves around what success looks like and when it's appropriate to have it by. Um, But again, I think I've taken a lot of that pressure off of myself because I've really embraced the idea that there isn't a destination. This is a really (laughs) interesting adventure. Who knows what it's going to look like five years from now? Um, And I have a a piece that I operate from that feels far more sustainable and far more mature, uh, which is I don't know what the future looks like. I'm fascinated and curious about it. Um, I've taken a lot of this time pressure off of myself so that I can build great things, not fast things, with great people, not the people who are right in front of me. Um, And I think, again, whether it's age or whatever it is, 
I'm a lot more selective. I'm a lot more strategic. Um, I care a lot less about what other people think. I care a lot less about, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. totally uninformed timelines that have been imposed for no reason other than I don't know why they end up being there. Um, yeah, and I think when we take the pressure off, that's when we can actually be the best versions of yeah. ourselves. But I, I have been bad at that in the past. It's almost like you don't want to reach the destination right. because when you do, you don't get to play the game anymore. Right. But playing the game is the fun part. Right. And that's what you want to do. So reaching the destination would be a travesty. Totally. And, you know, one of uh, Henry Cloud actually wrote another book called Necessary Endings, and he talks about this idea that everything lives in cycles and seasons, right? The weather, crops, you know, all of these things that are natural, they, they, there are seasons. And you're not harvesting all the time, right? There's seasons where you have to, you know, sow. There's seasons where you have to let the rain come in and do its job. You have to actually let the soil rest when you're a farmer. You, if you don't let the soil rest, it's going to affect your harvest. And so what really stuck out to me when I first started talking about this with him is I was putting this pressure on myself to be harvesting all the time. If mm. I was not harvesting all the time, I was failing. And what I've really come to embrace is that, you know, everything has seasons and cycles and things come to ends. And that doesn't mean failure, it just means it's time for it to end. And then new things can start. And sometimes rest is what is needed. Sometimes, you know, some really deep work is what's needed. Um, but really relaxing into this idea that it's so much more diverse than just hustling and, you know, doing this, you know, crazy run all the time, that it's so much more diverse than that. And that's actually the beauty of it. It's really interesting to, to let these cycles play themselves out and to really be, you know, a part of it. Yeah. So. And we get one go here, right? You're mm-hmm. on this earth once from what I know. Yep. And so we only get one time to play it. Yeah. So. It's yeah. important to enjoy it while Absolutely. we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carissa. How do our listeners look you up? If you have you on Twitter, are you where can they see what you're up to? I'm very bad at social media. Um, but our website is www.smallbizsilverlining.com. Um, we have a website which is about me, com, And then we are on social media, um, Twitter, Facebook. LinkedIn. Uh, so if you search for a while, you'll find us. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. This has been our first podcast. This has been an amazing start. I don't know how we're possibly going to keep up the quality of this. You will. Thank I'm you sure for you the will. conversation. Thank you. And we will miss you when you have to go back to New York for your nine months of your 12 months that you spend in the Northern Hemisphere. I'll be back. Thanks for listening to our very first Second Home podcast. Once again, that was Carissa Reiniger, CEO and founder of Silver Lining. If you have any ideas or questions for our podcast series, please contact our producer, Daniel Tan, on danieltanwh at gmail.com. My name is Jared Holland, and we hope you join us again for our next podcast.